today let's let's uh, look at Hebrews twelve, chapter twelve. That chapter in Hebrews that, um, as we continued the Hebrew series, the chapter that uh, refers to uh, discipline and chastisement, and I want to unpack that chapter and hopefully help us see what the writer is really saying there, because a legalistic view of the scripture is the worst thing ever. Um, because if you have, if you don't see that, like we said last Sunday, if we don't see that God is in union with you, not because you have stopped sinning, but because he has stopped counting sins. If you don't see that God has, God has given you favor and you have his favor, not because you have stopped sinning and you're now all got your all life together and you're acting perfectly, but because he has stopped counting sins and has given you his righteousness as a gift. If you don't see it as a foundation in your heart and mind, you can read scriptures, any scripture, and it becomes law, it becomes death, it becomes the letter that kills instead of the spirit that gives life. And Hebrews 12 is one of those chapters that if you really don't understand that, you can really, it, it can just throw you into a tailspin almost about, you know, what, this, what is this saying? Um, so as we read chapter 12, remember that it's Hebrews, the very letter we're reading, that says, he did not just cover our sins, he took them away. It's Hebrews that says, in this new covenant, I'll remember their sins no more. And I'll be merciful to all their iniquities. In the very same letter that chapter 12 is in. Okay. So that in mind, as we read chapter 12, I want us to see what the writer's really saying there because it's very encouraging. It's not, he didn't change in the middle of his letter what he believes about sin and about God and about you and about the new covenant. So what he's saying in chapter 12 is awesome when we see it in light of the truth. So we'll take a look at that and see what, what happens there. And just so you know, the way I approach scriptures that seem to be difficult to understand because they seem to contradict grace or they seem to contradict um, the new covenant, the way I approach it is I, I do just what I just did. I just, I remember the foundation. I remember the perspective in which to look at the scripture. I don't try to, I don't change what I know to be true to translate something that seems vague. You don't, don't use a scripture that is somewhat vague or ambiguous. Don't use that to change the foundation that you already know. But rather use the foundation to make the ambiguous scripture clear. It's that simple. And it's, it's a cool principle that in scripture interpretation, once you see it, you can really uh, profit by it. You know, Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, the Pharisees, they do greatly err. They do greatly err because they know not the scriptures nor the power of God. They know not the scriptures nor the power of God. And in that phrase, know not the scriptures, the deeper meaning there, I believe, is when in Luke, last chapter of Luke, the scripture says he opened the apostles' understandings, their understanding. It actually says he opened their minds that they might understand the scriptures. And then the next thing he said was, 
And then he revealed himself on every page, basically. He said, this was written of me in Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, which is the three divisions in the Hebrew Bible. All the books speak of me. So when he says that the Pharisees greatly err because they know not the scriptures, nor the power of God, he's saying in know not the scriptures, they don't see that it's all about me, that I've done something awesome, that God has done something awesome. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search these scriptures, and you think in these scriptures you have life, but they speak of me, and you won't come to me, but you might have life. So knowing the scriptures really means not just knowledge. You know, the, the, wise, I mean, the, you know, the wise men came to Jerusalem, and the scholars could say, yes, 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 he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. The Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Yes, yes, yes. The scripture says, you know, we have, we have the knowledge. Yes. Out of you, Bethlehem, shall he come. He shall be ruler in Israel. Yeah, that's, the, that's where he's supposed to be born. The wise men said, thank you very much. They went to Bethlehem. They saw the star. The Pharisees didn't see the star. They just had scripture. They had knowledge. They didn't even have the inkling to follow these wise men to check it out. They, they, you know, if I would have been a Pharisee, I'd have said, you know, let's go check this out. Bethlehem is not just a little, few miles down the road. I mean, this, is, this huge entourage comes into Jerusalem. They get an audience with Herod. Herod calls the, script, the Pharisees to tell them where's the Messiah supposed to be born. He's scared to death a king is being born. And all this happens, and the Pharisees just quote Scripture. But they don't know him. They don't know the God of the Scripture. So when he says, you search the Scriptures, and you think you have life in this Bible, but they speak of me, and you won't come to me, that's the true meaning of understanding the Scriptures or, or knowing the Scriptures. And the second part of that, they know not the Scriptures nor the power of God. A lot, of, a lot of people have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. They're all into godliness and morality and being good people, into going to church or into doing good deeds. But when you start talking about a new creation, when you start talking about a new birth, when you start talking about the power of the presence within here now, when you start talking about a door that's been opened to another reality, the kingdom of heaven within, when you start talking about this awesome work that God did, that we are no longer in the kingdom of darkness, but have been translated into a, another realm, the kingdom of the beloved son, by this awesome work of Christ, that's power. That's power. And some don't receive the power. They just want the form of godliness. Because a lot of people just want to be known as godly. They just want a reputation among men, that they're good people, they're godly people, they do good things. But when you start talking about the truth of who God is and what he's done, some back off. Who can, we hear, who can hear these things? Jesus. And they walked with him no more because they didn't see the power that was there. So I just say all that. This is the way we approach the scripture, looking for him, looking for the reality of him, knowing the power of God, knowing his great love that he demonstrated when he took away our sin forever. And then chapter 12 opens up, and we see what the writer is really trying to say. Cool. Lord, thank you so much for helping us see these things. Lord, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would open this chapter up and we would see the incredible encouragement that is there for the believer. Thank you, Father, for the power of your Spirit to open up our eyes. Thank you for renewing our minds that we might really know the scriptures like you want us to know them, which is to see your son on every page. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Thank you for the power of the Spirit that is inside each one of us. That glows like a blue flame even now as we sit in these seats. A flame invisible to the eyes, the natural eyes. The flame of the presence of God. For you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The presence. For he was joined to the Lord as one spirit. As we sit in these chairs. On this Sunday. On December 30th. 2012. As sons and daughters of the living God. We rest. Thank you for the unseen reality. As Paul said, look not on that which is seen, but that which is unseen. For the seen is temporary, but the unseen is eternal. Thank you for this rest. Thank you for this peace. Amen. We've been here about Legos today. Cool. My kids got some Legos for Christmas. They love Legos. All right, chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. As we know, chapter 11, right before chapter 12, is talking about, you know, men have called this the hall of faith or hall of fame of the faithful through the years, how through faith God blessed them, through faith they overcame obstacles, through faith, through faith, through faith. So when you get to chapter 12, it's the end of this list of all these incredible people, and the writer says, you know, I don't have enough time to even list all the people that I should list here that are in the scriptures. And so you go into chapter 12, and it says, therefore, verse 1 of chapter 12, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. When he says in verse 1, we have this great cloud of witnesses, the reference there is, is like in a stadium in the Greek. It's a reference to like a, a stadium of um, spectators watching us. Um, the witness there, I believe, is not there. It's not that they're witnessing your life or your race. As in chapter 11 says, they are witnessing to their race. They're witnessing to the faithfulness of God that they made it, you can too. In other words, no matter what hit us, God was faithful. He took us through. We are now a cloud of witnesses. We witness of him to you, to you and I. Isn't that awesome? So it's, it's actually like all these who are already in the heavens, who have gone through chapter 11, went through all these people that went through all this difficulty and, and struggle, and yet God in his faithfulness carried them through. They, they stopped the mouths of lions, scriptures. They, they stopped the sword, they, all these things. And some were persecuted and died for their faith, and yet... They were, you know, kept to the end and brought into the heavens. So the first thought is this stadium, the stadium of, of faithful witnesses, witnesses to God, to Jesus himself and the faithfulness of God. 
a great cloud of witnesses. So you're like running a race. This chapter is about endurance. It's about encouraging the saints to endure and to not give up in hard times. And so the, the believer is in this race, so to speak. Now, the race is a, is a race not in, in distance, but it's a race in time. So it's a matter of believing, simply believing as time goes by. See, the, the, track, is, the track is the time. You can sit still and run this race because it's not a matter of running a distance. It's not a matter of trying to get to heaven or get better. It's a matter of being, believing. And as time goes by, your redemption is nearer than when you first believed. You're almost at the end of the race. You see that? It's so cool. It's not a matter of your, it's not a matter of your strength to run fast or to be at a certain point. You're there at that point, but you're in time and space. So as you believe through time and space, and as the, top, the clock ticks, the years go by, you're running your race. You have believed, simply believed. That's the race we run. That's why endurance is important, that we don't you know, get discouraged when things come at us. Okay, and this chapter 12 is, it's in the context. The wording in chapter 12 is all about, and this is the key to chapter 12 right here. Chapter 12 is in the context of athletes in a stadium running a race and a coach coaching them through difficult times so they can be strengthened in their faith and endure. That's what it's all about. It has nothing to do with God punishing us for sin or when we walk after the flesh. Or it has nothing to do with that. In fact, what the Lord did in his work, he totally turned sin upside down. Remember when Jesus came up to the, the man who was lame and, and the Pharisees asked Jesus, is this man lame because of his sin or because of his parents' sins? See, their whole context before Jesus came was who's to blame? It's all about sin. You know, this person is lame. So our question is, is he lame because of his own sin or because of the sins of his parents? Now, that's the, that's the context that legalists take. That's, that's the perspective that legalists take in chapter 12 of Hebrews. Jesus, on the other hand, said to these Pharisees, he said, neither. Neither because of his sin or because of his parents' sin is this man lame. Because there's a new day now. A work is about to be accomplished where even where sin did cause sickness and death and all these other things, where it's true under the Pharisees' perspective that was the reality at one time. Jesus now, because of what he would do, he would turn the world upside down. He would flip everything by his sacrifice. He would take sin out of the equation and say, this is not because of his sin or his parents' sins. This is an opportunity to manifest the glory of my God, of my Father. See that? Isn't that awesome? Now, that's the perspective we should have of life. When things come at us, you don't think, is God doing this to me because I sinned? I mean, some people are so weak in the faith that they have a flat tire on the highway and they think, God's punishing me. I know I should have given more at church. And you get a flat tire on the way home. So next Sunday, they go, I'm going to give more. I promise God. And then, you know, you don't have a flat tire. You go, oh, good, thanks. You know, that's the kind of thinking we have in the church because we're so law-based and the leaven of the law is so much in our thinking. Things happen to us and we think it's because of our sin, our parents' sin. The answer is never to look to blame. It's to look in, in this, that situation as a 
a chance or an opportunity for God's glory to, to man, be manifested. It's a place to depend on Him. I'm not saying that we don't do fleshly things that bring problems and consequences. We talked about that last Sunday. You can do fleshly things that bring consequences. But God's perspective is not for you to dwell on the fleshly thing that you did. I mean, Paul says, this one thing I do, I forget that which is past. And I press forward. Put off the deeds of the old man. Put on the deeds of the new man. But in that situation, whether, whatever the consequence is because of a bad decision... It's an opportunity to manifest the glory of God because it's all of grace. It's all by faith. And he's not counting our sins against us. So it's not, he's not withholding favor or blessing because of some bad decision we made. It's a way to live life. Paul said, this is one thing I do. It's very important. This one thing I do, I forget that which is past. I don't try to, to rework my past. I don't try to reroute my life. I forget that which is past. I learn from it, hopefully, to live by him, to trust in him. But you don't dwell on that because that's not the reality. I mean, it's really true that the new creation has no past. I mean, there really is a new person that has been created that lives in a body that still has the wiring of the old man, the brain. So we're in this container, so to speak. The new man is having to work through this old container. We see through a glass darkly. We prophesy in part because we're having to work through brains that connect with this earth. We have to have the body because otherwise we have no connection with this world, this earth. So God left this treasure in earthen vessels so we can speak of him, but, and, and also, make, also to teach us that we have to live totally dependent on him, that the excellency of the powers clear, clearly seem to be of him, not of us. He did that on purpose, just like when he brought the children of Israel into is, Israel. He said, I'm going to leave some of the enemies in the land, so you'll always depend on me. He could have driven them all out. He said, I'm going to leave a few in the land, so you'll depend on me, so you won't feel like you did this yourself and then forget me. And when you're Fat and lazy with all the milk and honey, you just you forget who brought you here. So he left a few enemies in the land to, to keep them sharp, to keep them on their toes. It's God's way. It's a coach, like a coach. A coach before a game doesn't say, all right, just go out and have a big steak, whatever you want to eat, stay out late. Uh, yeah, 2 a.m. is fine. See you at the game tomorrow. No, there's a discipline about the coach preparing them for the game. Chapter 12 is all about a... Discipline in that sense of the word, a discipline, a training, a training of the believer in a fallen world so that we're not discouraged, so that we, our faith will be enhanced and strengthened at, at whatever the world throws at us. Does that make sense? It's awesome. That's why chapter 12 is such an encouraging chapter when you see it in light of Christ and the finished work of Christ. In fact, in chapter 12, we're going to see in a minute, he actually compares Jesus and his life and, his, and what he experienced, what hostility from sinners he experienced in this fallen world, he, he describes that whole experience that Jesus had and says, now, this, look at this. This is, this is like you're going, what you're going through, but not nearly what he went through. So he's comparing what Jesus went through with what the, the saints were going through, and we know Jesus had no sin. So this whole thing is not about sin. It's about a discipline, like a coach. It's about a training, like a coach. To the athlete, as a, Paul says, be a good soldier, be a good athlete, finish the race, be strong, lay aside every sin that easily entangles us, every encumbrance, just like Paul said, put off the deeds of the old man, put on the deeds of the new man, the new creation, and let us run this race with patience with, and see the reality of God by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And the author and finisher of our faith means that he's the one that revealed himself to us. He's the one that continually reveals himself to us. 
And that's how faith is born by the revelation of Christ. Faith comes by hearing, by the word, and hearing by the word of Christ. And faith is increased and, or grows as revelation of Jesus increases to us by the revelation of the Lord. So faith goes from faith to faith, from glory to glory, as a greater revelation of Him comes to us in the Spirit. The finisher of our faith is finally finished when at the very end we cross over and we see Him face to face. But it's all about seeing Him. Seeing Him in the beginning, seeing Him in the journey, seeing Him at the very end. It's beautiful. It's simple and profound. And it's a rest. Okay, let's finish this real quick. Verse 2, I love this. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now remember that phrase, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God? We read that. Hebrews chapter 1, same letter. Verse 3, He, Christ, is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. And He upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So this same writer, when he says He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, it's a reference to His finished work. After, after he made purification of all sins. So at the beginning of chapter 12, he's, remember, he's reminding the believer that it's a finished work, that your sins have been purified. As Peter says, you know, they who are not bearing fruit have forgotten that their sins were once purified or purged from all sin, which is so contrary to a lot of religious teaching today because a lot of religious teaching today will say, if you're not bearing fruit in your life, it's because you have unconfessed sin in your life. Or you have, uh, you know, something needs to be made right with God or something. No, Peter says, if, you, if you're not abounding in fruit, you have forgotten that your sins have already been purged. Because that is the secret to fruitfulness. The secret of fruitfulness is an open heaven. No barriers between God and me. The secret of fruitfulness is a growing awareness of union with Christ is my life. To live as Christ. The secret of fruitfulness is to know that it is not I, but Christ who lives in me. See? And all of that is possible only if we never forget that he purged our sins. He took away our sins once for all time. Religion doesn't get that, but that's the truth. And that's why religion is always fighting these truths that come through the centuries. And those who hold firm to this are like a lighthouse in this, the stormy sea, warning the saints of the rocks of legalism. It's... it's And we're in the middle of that right now. Okay. The joy that was set before him is you. It's you and I. Like Paul said to the saints, he goes, you are my joy. You are my joy, my crown of rejoicing. Paul says, I will gladly spend and be spent for you. That's Paul. That's Christ in Paul speaking. That's who Christ was. He goes, I will gladly spend and be spent for you. You are my joy. You are my crown of rejoicing. So when Jesus, the scripture says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, it was you and me. Isaiah said, he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. From the cross, he could see by revelation all that his death would do. So he endured the the suffering. He didn't have joy in the cross. He didn't have joy in the pain, the suffering. He had joy in what the cross was going to bring. He saw you and me. He saw each one of us. He knows the sheep by name. It's awesome. He, he despised the shame because he was, God hates shame. I mean, the, the crucifixion was a shameful death. You know, naked on a cross, before all people, crucified with thieves. Everyone think, what did he do? He must be really a bad person. 
evil person with transgressors on the cross. See? Full of shame. People walking by as you suffer a slow death. Horrible shame. God hates shame. Hates it. He hates shame. He hates people that, that bring other people into shame, too. He despises shame. Like in Noah, when the, Noah was after the flood, first thing Noah did was make a vineyard and make some wine. I mean, being in an ark with all those animals for 40 days, wait, you've got to have some wine. <laughs> he, I mean, really. So he made a vineyard, and he made some wine, and he drank too much. He got drunk, and so he's in his tent. Here's Noah. And one of the sons, as you know the story, comes in and sees his daddy drunk and naked in the tent, you know. And he comes out, and he laughs about it. And he exposes his dad's nakedness and says, you go see dad in there. He's naked, drunk in the tent. God was not happy with that. The two other brothers took a, a blanket and walked backwards so they wouldn't have to look at their father's shame in that state. Because, you know, his father, their father was a great man. And so they covered his, his father up. God blessed those two sons. But there was a curse put on that third son for generations. Same way with Joseph and Mary. Joseph was a righteous man, the scripture says. As righteous as you can be under the law. And when he found out Mary was pregnant, he knew it wasn't from him. So, it's either A, she had relations with another man, or B, this is the Son of God. He, well, B wasn't even on the list. Because the angels had not told him anything yet. So he wasn't even thinking B. It's got to be only A. All right, so Joseph, the scripture says, being a righteous man, he took Mary secretly away so she would not have shame. That's God. God chose Joseph to help raise his son because he was a man that didn't like to expose people and shame people. See, God hates those who want to expose and bring shame to people. That's not his heart. Revelation says, come to me, you who are naked, Buy from me clothes that, that your shame would not be seen. God hates that. God wants to cover you. You never need, need to be afraid of God shaming you or exposing you. He'll do everything in His power to help you behind the scenes until you're okay. And if, if any shame tries to come your way, it will be a weapon that will be not from Him. And any weapon formed against you will not prosper. For your righteousness is of Him, says the Lord. So, anyway, so here's Jesus despising the shame, but enduring the cross because of the joy set before him. And then you see verse 3. For consider him who has, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin or in the Greek evil. So see what he's saying, the writer, in verse 3 and 4? He's saying, now, consider Jesus who suffered such hostility from sinners, such, such uh, resistance, lest you grow weary. You have not yet resisted unto death, is what he's saying, blood. But Jesus did. So, he's, so right here you see, and he's comparing this experience that the, the believers and the Hebrew believers were going through with what Jesus went through. So we're not talking about sin. We're talking about being in a fallen world and being... Um, and not, not being discouraged, not grow weak and weary because of, of this onslaught of this world's power to try to wear you down. One of the things about the spirit of Antichrist, the scripture says, is the spirit of Antichrist tries to wear the saints down, tries to make them weary. Paul, Paul says, do not grow weary 
in well-doing, for in due time you shall reap. That's why it's so important to, to know the rest of God. That's, that's why it's so important to, to know that we can mount up as wings, with wings as eagles because he doesn't grow weary. We can walk and not faint and run and not be weary because he is our life. He is our strength. We are the bush that is not consumed as the fire burns because the fire does not need my energy. The fire does not need me as a source. The bush is not consumed because the fire has another source. The fire's source is the fire. God's his own source. And God in me burns, and I'm just a bush. I have this power in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power is clearly seen to be of God and not of me. I'm a bush that burns but is not consumed. Because when we walk in the ways of God, we will not be weary. One thing about grace, which is so awesome, you actually, as the years go by, you get more energized, more strengthened, more encouraged. When I was, had a mixture of legalism, first 10 years of my Christian life, I was going the other way. I was going down. I was getting more weary, more burned out, more discouraged, more self-conscious, more sin-conscious. So when the truth came and I began to see the reality of what Jesus did, it just reversed the process. The process began to come. The process began to go totally, you know, faith to faith, from glory to glory. A renewal of the mind. As the body was decaying and getting older and older, the inward man was being renewed day by day because of the, the reality of the new creation. And that's the way it's supposed to be. This, the Christian life is not a battery that loses its charge after 10 years. I used to say that. I said, I guess it's like a battery that needs recharging. No, there's no battery in the Christian life that needs recharging. You are hooked up to the source. The Spirit of God is in you. The source is not a battery. It's, it's the very presence of God. He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit. The presence is with me no matter what I'm going through. Because he has taken care of the sin issue. And I can rest in that reality. Okay. And verse 5, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. See, this verse is not really about sins. It's about sons. Remember that, saints. Chapter 12 is not about sins. It's not about discipline and chastisement and rebuke because of sins. It's about a world that has fallen, and, and it's all about how sons are to respond and how we are to reinterpret what happens to us in light of Christ. Not, is this here because of his sin or of his parents' sin, but rather, this is here, this difficulty is here to manifest the glory of God. You see the difference? Okay, all right, let's look at uh, verse 5. Quoting the scripture, he says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. For it is, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline or, or train? Okay. What he's saying here, saints, is... Remember now, he's, he's talking about training. The word discipline speaks of training. Athletes, there's a reproving sometimes to a coach, to a, a, a player, athlete. Always remember this, too. This is something I always do. Look at the life of Jesus. Do you see... Any occasion in the life of Jesus. Jesus said, if you see me, you see the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Hebrews says, Hebrews says, he's the express image, the exact representation of God. To see Jesus is to see God. He left nothing out that we need to know in his manifestation of who he was and who he is and who the Father is. Is there a single example in the life of Jesus in the Gospels 
dealing with his own disciples now. Is there a single example where he scourged them or um, punished them for their sins? Or is there a single example? See, and there's not a single one. Is there an example of a rebuke from Jesus to the disciples? Yes. Yes. But what kind of rebuke was it? And for what purpose? He rebuked them and said, Oh, ye of little faith, why did you doubt? See, the rebuke of the coach, the, the, the rebuke of the coach for the believer is not about punishing sin. It's not punitive because if the sin issue is done, he sat down on the right hand of God. The writer reminds us that at the beginning of this chapter 12. The rebuke of the coach is, is like, son, you cannot run this race tomorrow if you're going to eat cake all night. That's the rebuke. Or, son, you cannot win this battle tomorrow. You cannot win this Chick-fil-A bowl tomorrow or whenever it played if you don't have confidence that what I've taught you works. See, where's your faith? Begin thinking in terms of a coach and an athlete. God is coaching us. He's telling us, yeah, you're free to have that, but it's not going to help you with this race. You, yeah, you're free to do that. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable, Paul says. So the coach is telling the athlete this, the, to, you may want to consider putting this off because this is always encumbering you. You may want to consider setting aside this because this is always encumbering you. Not in a condemning way, but in a coach, coaching the athlete, which is awesome. And fathers do that for sons. It's a mark that he belong, that you belong to him, that I belong to him. That's why he's saying here, that's, that's a good thing. Because otherwise, like verse, the next verse says, for b- verse 8, But if you are without discipline or without training, of which all have been par- par- become partakers, all the believers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So those are, that are not his sons, God doesn't take an interest in them like he, like he can with you because they're not, they don't believe. He's still reaching out his hands to them. He still wants them to believe. But he can't really have a relationship with them because they don't believe. So as a son and a daughter, though, he can train us. He can train us and help us when the when hard things come so that we know that he is with us, the author and finisher of our faith. And as he endured, I can endure. And the reason why we can endure because Jesus endured is because not because not because he's just an example of that. It's because that Jesus who's already been through all this is in you. See, that's the key. It's not just he's an example of enduring hostility from sinners and hang in there because Jesus did it. No, no, this Jesus who did that, who went through all that, who accomplished everything, is now in you. The same Jesus that won the race is in you. Isn't that awesome? So it's not up to me to emulate Jesus and try to copy Jesus, try to follow in his steps. No, it's me. It's up to me to fix my eyes on him who has accomplished all things and who now is my life. For I'm, I was crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, in this body I live by faith in him who loved me, and gave himself for me and to me. For me in sacrifice and to me now to be my strength. Isn't that awesome? See how chapter 12 is an encouraging chapter to tell the saints he wants to, to teach us, you know, the, the Father wants to coach us. Look at verse, look at verse 10. For Let's see, verse 9. 
verse 9, Furthermore, we had, we had earthly fathers to discipline us or train us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined or trained us for a short time as we were gr- growing up as seemed best to them. But he does it for our good that we may share in his holiness, that the, that the reality of who we are may, might get out, might be manifested. Verse 11, All discipline or training for the moment seems to not be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, see the word trained? Those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It's not necessarily joyful when God is allowing things to come into our lives that are not fun. But it's part of the training that we might rely on Him. You know what it means when Jesus said, My Father is the husbandman of the vine. I am the vine, you are the branches, and my father is the husbandman or the gardener. And he prunes, prunes the vine. He prunes at times that we might bear more fruit. Pruning is when the branch is, is doing pretty good. I mean, it's bearing fruit, looking good. And then all of a sudden it gets cut back. And you go, wow. But what happens is all that life that was going into that, in that branch, all that life that was bearing fruit and flowers and stuff and leaves, when you cut it back, all that life is still coming. So what happens is now the life is, bears more fruit because it doesn't have all these branches that it's going through anymore. It's like just one branch. It's concentrated, and it's like, whoa. And then so pruning brings forth more fruit because it's, it concentrates the life that's already flowing through one limb until it bursts out even more powerful than ever. So what is pruning? Pruning is when God allows difficulty to come in our lives. He, it's not sin. He didn't, pruning is not a sin thing. It's not an issue of, of evil. It's an issue of, of growth and training. That's what chapter 12 is all about. He allows things difficult to come in our life so that we would trust him all the more. You know, we're used to, we're used to all these things in our life, okay? All these limbs, we're just getting, getting really used to these things. We're kind of relying on these things. And all of a sudden, God, oh, God, I just lost my job. Now I've got to move to another city. But all that life, all that relationship, all that experience that is in you, you take to the, that next city, and more fruit comes out than ever. It's God's way of making us strong and bear more and more fruit. Okay. And then he says, Strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. We'll end there on chapter 12, verse 13. But you see the heart of the writer Strengthen the weak hands and the knees that all might be healed. Let the life flow through every cell of your body, so to speak, that life might be manifested. What a coach. What a coach. What a father that says, I'm going to train you. I'm going to show you that when they, when they hit you with this, I'm going to show you how to overcome that. I'm going to show you what, what's behind that. I'm going to show you. No weapon formed against you will prosper. I will teach you. I will guide you with my eye. I will lead you with my eye. Fix your eyes on me. Look at me. I'll, I'll lead you with my eye. And you cannot fix your eyes on Jesus and look at sin in your flesh at the same time. The word is clear. Fix, set your eyes on Jesus. Because you are a new creation. And as he is, so are you in this world now. So when you fix your eyes on him, as Paul says, it's, a look, it's like looking in a mirror. You're seeing yourself. He's made you in his own image. Awesome. Rest in that. Allow that life to flow and let the fruit come forth. Let the weak hands be strengthened. Let the feeble knees be strong. Endure the race. 
As time goes by, we simply believe. And then it's over. Lord, thank you so much for helping us see these things. Thank you for the cloud of witnesses. Thank you that all things are possible with you. All things. Fear not. For I am the Lord. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue that raises its voice in condemnation against you, I shall condemn. For your righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Rest, my child. Rest. Rest. I am your victory. I am the end of the race. You now sit with me in heavenly places. Just stand. Just stand in the evil day. Just stand and believe. Fear not. Believe only. And you will see the glory of God. And no flesh will glory in his presence. No flesh. It's all of Christ. Forever. Amen.